be reading James 1, 13 to 15. You can follow along on screen as I read the passage aloud for us. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then, after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. This is God's word. I've uh, been noticing something uh, watching all the Disney movies with my kids. Uh, the old Disney movies and uh, the new Disney movies. I've noticed that uh, the older Disney movies, uh, the antagonist was typically in, like an external figure, uh, like a villain, like Scar in The Lion King, or uh, Jafar in Aladdin, or the evil queen in Snow White, uh, or Sid in Toy Story. But there's been like a, a, a shift, a recent shift, to internal realities as the antagonist in the newer movies. I don't know if you've noticed this as well. Uh, like it's the emotion of gloom in Inside Out. Gloom, that's, that's what needs to be overcome in Inside Out. Uh, it's family trauma and expectations and brave and in Canto and in Elemental, like all the movies, right? And you might think that in Frozen it's Prince Hans, but it would be way more accurate to say it's fear. Fear is the real antagonist that must be overcome in Frozen. And I bring this up because I put a lot of hours in Disney movies and I want it to pay off somehow. That's like the first, let's just, that's the first thing. But also because our culture seems to move from this internal, external dichotomy when trying to put its finger on the evils that plague human society. Is it in here? Is it out there? I mean, the reason why our world is so messed up, is it because of like people, why are we so messed up? Why do we struggle with personal pathologies and distress? Is it society that does all this? Is it submission to oppressive structures of power out there in our world? That's the reason for all of our problems. Or is it that while structures and systems may contribute to personal breakdown, the real problem is primarily the consequence of personal deformation, meaning the problem is in here, it's inside the individual. To bring this home in a really like on the street sort of way for us in San Francisco, is it addiction to drugs and mental health? Or is it access to affordable housing? That's the real problem with the unhoused crisis in San Francisco. And you see this vacillation happen all the time. I'm not really on social media anymore, but when I was, every single time there'd be something about homeless, people would be fighting, it's drugs, no, it's housing, no, it's drugs, it's housing. This goes on and on and on. If people just had more access to housing, if people just got off drugs, is it internal, is it external? In other words, is it internal demons we fight or is it external demons we fight? Because knowing the location of a problem can help us find a solution. Is a solution found out there in social struggle, in policy reform, or a revolution, political or otherwise, is it out there? Or is a solution found in here, in behavioral modification, in therapy, and in lifestyle changes? Are the demons outer or inner? And are they demons at all? I mean, are, are these real demons? Is there really a spirit of greed and capitalism in America? Is it like a real demon? Are there real societal demons? Are there real personal demons? Is there like a spirit of lust that makes you so addicted to pornography? 
like it's the demon and an actual demon that is, if you cast it out today, you can, you can be free from all of that? And can you cast out a societal spirit? Like casting out the spirit of greed over Wall Street or spirit of violence over the Middle East, can you do that? And does it work? And how do we know the demon, if that's what it is, is a demon at all? And not just some illness that needs a cure. Bringing it full back to Disney, specifically Moana, the best ever. What if we think we're fighting a demon? We think that the real fight is with Taka, the lava demon monster in the movie. But Taka isn't a demon. Taka is really Tefiti that doesn't need deliverance as much as she needs healing. Meaning, if the movie was all about casting out Taka and fighting Taka, that wouldn't work because Taka needed healing. Because some people Jesus delivered and some people Jesus healed. What do we need? A deliverance or a healing? How do we know if it is a demon and not just something that needs to be healed? I guess when I ask all these questions, what I'm really asking is the big question of discernment. How do we know if the thing that plagues us is a chemical imbalance in the brain and can be treated by medication and or therapy, or is it demonic that needs more than that? How do we know if we're depressed or oppressed? Now, spoiler alert, I can't answer any of these questions for you. You're like, oh my gosh, this is gonna be a great sermon. I can't do any of that. This is what counseling is for, okay? This is one-on-one stuff. I cannot answer it from behind a pulpit. There needs to be a lot more involved in that. If I think I can handle it from the pulpit, I would be, that would be horrible. That would be really, really bad practice for me. But what I can do, and what I want to do today, is to give you language and understanding of the reality of what is traditionally called spiritual bondage and or oppression, and to learn what Scripture says are its causes and cures. I'm going to try to give you today categories and language when thinking and dealing with these in your own life and in the world as it pertains to spiritual bondage, as it pertains to is it a demon or not a demon, or how do demons are, are involved with that? Is that me or something else? Next week, what I want to do is I want to build on this by using the most famous and common example of this in Scripture, but today I just want to give you categories. The first category that I want to build out for you is sin. Sin. Now, we talked about this last week and what sin is. Uh, Sin, basically, biblically, is rebellion against God. Okay, it's rebellion against God, plain and simple, full stop. But at the heart of it is something deeper than rebellion against God. It's not rebellion for rebellion's sake. It's something deeper. It's what St. Ignatius said. Sin is, quote, unwillingness to trust that what God wants for me is only my deepest happiness. It's an inability to trust that when God puts up guardrails, barriers, commands about human flourishing, this is only for my deepest happiness. This is Genesis 3 all over again, over and over and over again. God doesn't want my deepest happiness. And so, Jesus would call it life in the full. God wants life in the full for you, life and life to its fullest. And sin is believing and thinking, unwillingness to trust that that's what God really wants when he gives us flourishing, gives us his idea of what it means to be human. Francis Spufford was a little bit more crass in saying that sin was, we talked about this last week, the human propensity to F things up. The human propensity to mess things up. Moods, uh, promises, relationships we care about, our own well-being and other people's as well as like material objects. It's this like propensity to want to ruin things. Okay, but what is that, how does that play into spiritual bondage? How does sin play into spiritual bondage? Now, 
Probably a question that's in the air right now or a question you might be asking yourself is what is spiritual bondage? What is that? Here's a good definition from a great book called Deliverance Ministry. Quote, spiritual bondage refers precisely to the kind of situation in which our will is to some degree bound or constrained, such that our conscience may not even perceive that something is amiss. The will is not fully destroyed since it may be free in most situations, but it is impeded in some circumstances so that its range of action is limited. So to give you um, what, what this means in simple language, it has to do with the will. And do you have a, uh, a will that can actually make a decision or a will that can't make a decision? For example, let's say a woman is a, a very, you experience her as very peaceful and self-controlled most of the time. But underneath, she's carrying this like deep-seated rage towards her mother. So that when she is with her mother, or FaceTiming her mother, or calling her mother, she often loses control and ends up in a heated argument. In such a case, the will is present, but unable to act. It's like a limb that is paralyzed, but not amputated. Now, you can say that there's a bondage in this relationship. There's a bondage in this situation, that the will is there most other times and able to act with control and restraint but in this situation, it's unable to act and there is a complete loss of control. That is a good working idea of spiritual bondage. Now, I'll take that example and apply it to online shopping. <laughs> Honestly, do it. It's like, there is no should I or shouldn't I. It's should I all the time. It's the, oh yes, I'm gonna, all the time. Apply that to doom scrolling. Apply that to drinking. Apply that to pornography. Apply that to serial dating. Apply that to promiscuity where the will is bound, where you might have a great deal of will and discipline in some areas of your life, but you have no idea why you have no control in this area of your life. Why can't I get control of that thing? You can call that spiritual bondage. Okay, what does it have to do with sin, though? Sin proper. What does it have to do with temptation and sin? Our text today is James 1, 13 through 15, which I think I've been wanting to teach on because I think it's a very helpful thing when, when talking about the unseen realm because we have the tendency as people who study demonology and study the spiritual and study the unseen realm to call everything a demon. Everything is demonic. Temptation, demon. That, demon. Demon. Demons everywhere. It's, all, it's always a demon. James makes this clear. It's not always a demon. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. So it's obviously in the, squarely in God, the, un, the unseen God. God's doing this to me. No, he's not doing this to you. Because right before this, James talks about trials, and God does take you through trials. But God doesn't tempt you to, e to do evil. So what James does, he goes, let me, let me tell you where evil comes from. Let me tell you why you fall into sin and evil. Here's why. Each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, this is very graphic language, by the way, conceived, I mean, this is sexual intercourse language, right? After there is, with your own desire, there's, a, there's intercourse, there's conception. Desire conceives and it gives birth, and you have a baby, and that baby's sin. And the sin grows up and it kills you. That's the, that's the picture. 
Okay, this passage is very helpful in speaking about sin and temptation apart from God. And I would even say the devil, because there's nothing in here about the devil or spiritual warfare. This is plainly like what happens in your body, in your life when, when you're tempted. It places the responsibility squarely on the individual, since we all have a free will, which means that we're all responsible for our actions, whether good or evil, since our will cannot be forced, by demons anyway. See, demons can scare or deceive us into choice, but that choice is ours. Sin comes about when at some level, and here, this is important, sin comes about when at some level we want the thing we are tempted with. We want the thing. But here's the other side. Part of you doesn't want the thing. Does that make sense? This is, this is the, 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 the conflict. But if we do commit the sin, it means that at some level we did want the sin. The way James puts it is this. Our own evil desires. We want it, but we also know there's a conflict. We don't want it. Let me give you an example, a personal example. Um, when I, I told you, I think I told you last week that um, I'm uh, Enneagram 7, which is um, the need to avoid pain, if you know this, and, and, and the need to have fun all the time, and everything needs to be awesome all the time. Okay, so that's like my personality. Uh, if you know me, you're like, well, yeah, that's pretty spot on. Okay. So, my temptation to sin is running away from pain and conflict. It's always a temptation for me. Every time that I'm faced with any interpersonal conflict or systemic sort of church-wide conflict, my temptation is to bail. I'm just like, I'm out. I'm, I'm just out. I'm not doing that. I'm, I'm leaving. I have other things to do with my life. I don't want to do this. I don't want to, I don't want to do conflict. I don't want to do the conflict here, in the church, in the staff, in my marriage, I just, I have other things to do with my life. Like have fun, you know, go, go to Hawaii, go, go travel, you know, eat food. I would much rather do all that other stuff than do conflict. Why would I do conflict? And in this temptation, there's always this part of me wants to leave and part of me doesn't want to leave. And that's the temptation. That's the conflict. And I've had failure and great success in this in my life. The reason why I'm here is because at certain points when the temptation was to leave, I didn't leave. And there's other things in my life where the temptation was to leave and I did leave. And I've learned and repented and all of that stuff, but that's always there. There's always a battle within me. Okay, so let's go back to spiritual bondage. So keep sin and temptation and the will that's divided here. Okay, and let's go over to spiritual bondage. Sin and spiritual bondage seem, seem quite similar in that both involve the will. However, there's a difference between sin and spiritual bondage, and it's this. Next slide. Sin, in the case of sin, the will is divided. In the case of bondage, the will is constrained. Does that make sense? When, you, when you're tempted to sin, the will's divided. I want to do it, but also I don't want to do it. But also I want to do it but I don't want to do it. I want to leave, but I want to stay. What do I do? And you're wrestling through this temptation. When you, there was probably a point in your life, if you are under spiritual bondage, where you had a divided will on the subject. Whether, let's just say if it was promiscuity, there was this wrestle at the beginning, and now the wrestle feels like not a wrestle at all. It's easy, just right there. Online shopping. There was a time like, should I, can I afford that? I don't know. Now it's like, oh yeah, I don't even think about it. I just get it. 
there's this thing that what happens is the will's divided when it comes to sin, but spiritual bondage is when the will is constrained and it feels like there's no decision at all anymore. In a divided will, when tempted to sin, we really want the sin we're being tempted to commit, but we also really want not to sin. And there's struggle and there's conflict. And here's the thing. The conflict doesn't really have to do with the devil or demons. Not always. It can. It can have to do with devil or demons. But there does, there's nothing to say that it's always a demon. So when you're tempted, you can't go like, Satan! But you don't know. That could be your own evil desire. It could be like Satan's like, oh, that's, not, that's on you. <laughs> you. You want those shoes. I never said to get those shoes. Don't bring me into this. Like that sort of thing. Like, it's you. You want that thing. And sometimes we think, oh, no, no, no it's, it's Satan, it's Satan, oh, my gosh. No, no, it's you. And what that does is it puts that responsibility on you. That means you have work to do, right? It's much easier to blame, oh, it's Satan. That means I don't have work to do. It's just his thing. Jesus, handle him. I'm good over here. It's him. No, it's you. You have a will. Okay. I guess what I'm trying, what I'm really trying to do with you today, church, is I want to try to take the devil made me do it out of your worldview. You have free will. I'm trying to have us take responsibility for our actions and realize that oftentimes when we are under, what we are under is not bondage, but sin. That needs to be overcome by repentance and good old-fashioned Christian sanctification. That's what needs to happen. Repentance and then sanctification, give your life over to spiritual practices and disciplines over and over again. Ask the Holy Spirit to fill your life. This is a discipline. You need to walk in Christian sanctification. Trust God and do the work. Okay, if that's sin, and sin is a divided will, how does spiritual bondage happen? When our will becomes constrained, how does spiritual bondage happen? Now, there are several ways spiritual bondage begins to happen in a person's life. The easiest one to identify, but the hardest one to root out, would be unconfessed and repeated sin. To use a divided and constrained paradigm, when a repeated sin becomes habitual, the side of the divided will that desires not to sin is deadened more and more. In neuroscience, this is called neuropathways, ingrained patterns in our brains that make it hard to choose something else. On the spiritual side of neuroscience is the idea of strongholds and footholds. Jesus said that whoever sins, sins, repeats sins, becomes a slave to sin. You become a slave to it. It's your master. Now you have no control. It's a stronghold that is built when we give into sin again and again and again. And what happens when we give into sin again and again and again, we either deny that it's sin or that we deny that it's wrong, or we justify it. That's what happens. That's the way our will becomes deadened and then ultimately constrained. We justify it. We say things like, it's because, I do this because I'm lonely. I do this because I'm, it was the way I was raised. I do this because of my ex-wife or ex-husband or ex-boyfriend or ex-girlfriend. And we justify it or we deny it. Well, that's not, does the Bible really say that? I haven't seen chapter and verse yet. Does it really say that thing? I haven't. I, 
I don't, I don't know where it says you can't just watch Netflix 24-7. I have not seen that there. So I don't think that's a thing. Obviously, that's a stupid example, but we, we do this. We're like, well, the Bible, I've not read that in the Bible yet. First thing is, have you read the Bible? I mean, that's probably the first step, right? <laughs> Usually people say that. I'm like, have you read the Bible? Well, no, I haven't, but I've, I've been in church a long time. Okay, well, maybe start there. Start by reading the Bible. Um, anyway, sorry. So <laughs> we justify it, and then we deny sin and start to justify our sin. And then when we do that, and this is where, this is where spiritual where it gets spiritually convoluted. This is, this is when we give permission to Satan to build a stronghold. This is when Satan's just like, oh, this is fun. This is easy. This is the beginning of spiritual bondage. This is when the will is being constrained, where you, where you have no longer a divided will, you have a constrained will. It's like you have no choice. Remember the, the definition from the book of Deliverance Ministry. It says, spiritual bondage refers precisely to that kind of situation in which our will is to some degree bound or constrained, such that our conscience may not even perceive that it's something amiss. So to pull the personal, my personal example back into this, if I always run when things get hard, and then I justify it, and then I do it again, and again, not only will at some point it become so ingrained in me that I can't do anything else but run, but my conscience won't even perceive that as something that's wrong when I do it. Does that make sense? I will do it, and my conscience won't even go, are you sure you want to do that? It'll just go, yeah, we're doing that thing. This is what we do. And you, would just, you live in this ingrained pattern, and you don't see anything other than that thing. Your conscience thinks that the evil thing or the wrong thing is the right thing, and there's no longer any more struggle. And sometimes we sin to keep us, and sometimes, you know, when we do sin, it, what we're doing is we're trying to keep ourselves from what we fear the most, and I understand that. I mean, that's, that's running for me. I'm, it keeps me, running keeps me from rejection. If I could reject the situation before I'm rejected, I have some sort of control. So that's the temptation. See, no matter where, what layer you are in your sin, you can probably find some reason for why it's happening. Let's say you're lying. If, if lying keeps us from what we fear the most and we keep doing it and we keep lying, there comes a time when we don't know the truth anymore. And we only know the lie. And then, and then we're in spiritual bondage. Okay, so back to James 1. James says this. Then, after desire has conceived... It gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. Now, notice the progressive nature of sin. That sin, left on its own, unchecked in the conscience and the will, keeps growing. And then it takes on a life of its own. Something is born from our sin. A new reality is born. And this new reality brings with it death. Now, what kind of death? Well, death to life in the full. Death to our will, our conscience is seared, where we don't know good from evil, truth from lie anymore. Bondage, again, would be a great word for this. Now, not only is this a framework to how sin leads to spiritual bondage, but I think for some of you in here this morning, this is also a warning for willingly living in rebellion. Some people are willingly right now, you know right and wrong, and you wrestle, but you're just, yeah, I'm just gonna do the wrong thing. For this season, I'm just going to rebel for a season of my life. I'm just going to do, I, I, I'm going to give myself this, this little season of rebellion. 
Where's the warning? The warning is right now you have a choice, but eventually you won't have a choice. You'll be bound. You'll be lost, and the thing you thought was a choice is no longer a choice, and that thing will just be the only option that you have, and you will think that thing is the right thing, and then everything will be twisted, and you won't be able to see up from down. That's the warning. Another way spiritual bondage happens, and I'm not an expert in this, so I'll speak very briefly on this matter, is trauma and our response to trauma. Not just what happened to us, but how we responded to what happened to us. How we respond to trauma becomes a pattern that can become a spiritual bondage. Trauma is an open wound that um, the demonic loves to latch onto. Not always, but oftentimes. A type of bondage it can transform into, when uh, the, the response from trauma, the, the kind of bondage it can transform into, is um, that of overwhelming negative emotions, such as guilt or fear or jealousy or despair or resentment or deep anger or rage or hatred. Sometimes this is directed toward particular categories of people, such as men or women or authority figures. That is a kind of, it's like this authority figure, this man, this woman, broke my heart, destroyed my life. I will never trust men, women, pastors, leaders, bosses, politicians, name it, again. We respond to this trauma by just saying, I'm, I don't, I'm not gonna trust that group of people anymore. And that can turn into, and this has happened, um, this has happened a lot in my life and all of our lives, we, we know this. Another type of bondage from our response to trauma is repetitive and obsessive thought patterns. Like for instance, there may be an attraction to death, or a habit of legalism, or a habit of interpreting the actions of others as an attack on, on you. This is sometimes related to a very specific sentence or word spoken to us in the past that has like this inordinate amount of influence and power in our minds, and it feels like, a, feels like bondage. And so, what does deliverance look like from these things? And what is, when is it appropriate for deliverance and when is it appropriate for healing? What's the difference between deliverance and healing? Okay, I wanna say this. Not everything is about deliverance. Or at least it might not end in deliverance. Because sometimes we need healing and reformation. That's what we need. I think of, and I don't use this example lightly because this is, it's always really hard to bring up. But my, um, uh, my wife, who at one time in, in her life dealt with an eating disorder for years, she didn't need deliverance. That would not have helped. We actually tried. It sometimes drove me and her into deeper despair. We wanted to show up to a prayer meeting and it'd be over like that. We wanted deliverance. We wanted, she wanted deliverance. But what she needed was healing. And there's a huge difference. The long, hard road of healing. See, sometimes deliverance is sexy and it seems so easy. God does all the work and I just stand there and like shake and then Jesus shoots this demon out of my chest. And I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm free. Let's do this. Let's go eat some pizza at, you know, Ayers Mindy or something. Let's do this. I'm, I'm, we, that we want that. And does that happen? Yeah, that, that does happen sometimes. Absolutely. It's happened in this church in the last few weeks. I know it happens. But to say that that's all that happens would be to mislead you. Sometimes the deliverance, what 
the, the form that deliverance just takes is that you see that thing that your will and your conscience has been seared that you can't see anymore and you finally see it today and God is delivering you from your eyes being closed to it and now he's invited you into the hard work of healing. This is, um, this is the taka metaphor, by the way. Moana, everyone, back there. Deliverance ministry would have... What would have done is like trying to get rid of the lava monster, but what the lava monster needed was its heart back. That's, that's, that's the, I mean, I think this is a beautiful metaphor. This is an important metaphor. We think, well, it's just this one thing, and if we just do this one thing, if we cast this thing out, but no, that, that thing is, is the person. So when you're casting the thing out, you're, what you're trying to cast out is that person that needs to be reformed and healed and changed. However, there is sometimes a struggle that regular practices of Christian life cannot alleviate. Sometimes you do confession, you do repentance, you do communion, Eucharist, you do prayer, you do spiritual direction, you do therapy, and the thing remains. The repetitive sin remains, the strong negative emotion remains, the thought pattern remains and becomes obsessive, this is probably a very good situation for deliverance. For Jesus to break strongholds. And this happens, like I said, I've seen this happen several times just in the last six weeks. Freedom from people that I've done the stuff over and over again, but that thing is here, and then in a moment, broken. Now, I want to end with um, Jesus in John 10. Because I think this gets after, this is a continuum, it gets after what the enemy, so we talked about last week, there's no neutral side, there's no neutral ground, it's either light or darkness, very, very black and white in this situation. Jesus is in the middle of a parable in John 10 about his identity, he's a good shepherd of the sheep, we're the sheep, he knows us by name, he gives us ways to come in to his sheepfold and to go out to find pasture. He leads us by, this brings up Psalm 23, all this stuff. He's the same. Uh, he's that shepherd. And then right in the middle of that, he inserts uh, this like word about the thief or the enemy or the Satan. He says in John 10, 10, the thief comes only to still kill and destroy. And I have come that they may, they, the sheep, us, may have life and have it to the full. The thief's ultimate intention in your life and in my life is to steal, to kill, and destroy. That's the intent, your ultimate destruction. And here's the thing. The thief is agnostic about how that happens or when that happens. You might self-destruct, and he might not have any, he might, I don't have anything to do with that. That person's self-destructing. That's not me. But he's happy. Like, hey, I'm here to, as long as it happens, it happens. Or it might take all the forces of hell to destroy you. He only wants your destruction. Jesus, however, has come that we would have life and life to the full. And the way we need to think about this continuum is if all the forces of hell are trying to pull us towards destruction and pull this whole world toward destruction, Jesus, with the same sort of fervor, in the same way the thief is hell-bent on our destruction, Jesus is unyielding in his desire for you to have life and life to the full. 
So he is pulling us, always pulling us towards life to the full. He will not stop doing this. He will do this over and over and over again. He will send angels your way. He'll send people your way. He'll send messages your way. He'll send podcasts your way. He'll send anything your way. He wants you to have life and life to the full. And he's relentless in this pursuit. And what this means is that today, you're here this morning, and you might be thinking, um, I, I see maybe for the first time, or I see again this thing in my life that I want freedom from, and I'm just getting a glimpse of it. You right now have this opportunity to turn to Jesus and be delivered or start the long process of healing. And again, that takes discernment. But when Jesus gets, let's say it's a broken heart. When Jesus gets over that broken heart, he's not like, I'm all done with you. I did it. You fixed your heart. I, I healed you of that broken heart because of that relationship. We're good now, Right? No, he's like, no, I want your complete, complete life to the full. So he will not stop, and he will then go after this thing, and that thing, and this thing. Whatever is competing against his love in your life, it will surface in your life so Jesus can deal with it and eradicate it. Over and over and over again. So whatever stage of your life that you're at, I would imagine right now Jesus put his finger on something that he wants freedom for you in. So would you stand with me and I'm gonna have Dave McKinney lead us in a prayer, lead us in a time of responding to this.